Have you tried Music to Code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1403, recorded Friday, January 13th, 2017. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here with another geek out. What's up, Richard? Uh, order of recording is always fun, right? We've just had our Christmas break. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> you know, even though there's stuff scattered around, you know, but we always try and publish a geek out in the middle of a, th- the middle of a month on a Thursday. So, yeah, sequencing yeah. is fun. Uh, things are good. It's cold here. It's cold there. It might be wintertime, you know? It's bad. Actually, <laughs> there's 10 inches of snow outside. Uh. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to send you a picture. It's pretty crazy. Nice. Um, historically, I was always away when the snow came big right. time. Yeah. And, uh, and m- my wife's family had no end of uh, picking on me about that, you know, because <laughs> I'm in cahoots with the weatherman and all yep. that. They had a way of making me feel guilty about the weather, which is awesome. We had our first white Christmas in the Vancouver area in years and years and years and years. Like, it's been a long time. Wow. Since we had a white yeah, Christmas. Yeah, most of the time it's a slushy Christmas for or you. Or just huh? rain. Just lots of rain. Yeah. You know. A so. wet Christmas. Yep. Because <laughs> you don't have to shovel rain. But uh, right. we've been shoveling like mad over here. Well, um, it's funny because my Better Know framework today is directly related to Christmas. <laughs> so roll the music. Oh, is it? <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? I think I know. (laughs) Of course you know, because you gave it to me. Yes, I did. All right, so you've heard Richard and I talk about sous vide, which is a cooking technique where you vacuum seal a food in a bag, and then you put it in a circulating water bath where the temperature is precisely controlled. And the problem with this stuff is it's been out of reach of the average consumer for a long, long time. It's the kind of thing you only see in high-end French restaurants, like very high-end, right? Yeah, sure. This is the, the fancy stuff, right? They, and Because all of this gear comes from the scientific community. So, you know, right. it used to be immersion circulation pump systems, which was a big tank and so forth. It took up a lot of counter space. Right. They were $1,000. Yep, exactly. So, uh, I had talked about the dork food 
sous vide device that I that's a hundred bucks, right? And I got it on Amazon, and it's ingenious because it works with a crock pot, and it's simply a relay. You plug this device in, you plug the crock pot into it, and then it essentially turns the circuit on and off to turn the crock pot on and off, which uh, you know makes the heating element come on and. And it has a thermometer that you dunk in the water in a crock pot, a slow cooker. Crock pot, I think, is a brand. Yep. Yeah. A slow cooker. Yeah. And based on that thermostat, it will turn off and turn on the uh, the slow cooker. But the problem is that it's a relay and relays click. Yeah. Well, and it only can be so precise. Yeah. Exactly. You know, there's always going to be a lag between the amount of heat that was put into, you know, most of those slow cookers, they're made of ceramic, so they hold heat really well. And so, yeah. you know, it, you can't be too precise with that. Well, I thought it was ingenious, but this thing that uh, that you got me for Christmas is great. It's an Anova, A-N-O-V-A, precision cooker. It's a stick. Right. And it hooks on to the side of your pot, and the pot doesn't have to be on the stove because it's got its own heating element. It clamps on, and then down into the water goes uh, this thing, this stick that has a heating element, a thermostat, and an an immersion circulator. It circulates the water. It pumps it around and keeps it moving. It precisely and quickly heats up the water and keeps it at that steady temperature. Within like a tenth of a degree. I mean, it's quite precise probably more precise than it needs to be right uh i find i keep my pot in the sink when i use this yeah yeah that's a good idea you know the thing about it is okay that sounds very geeky but what can you do oh let me tell you (laughs) i actually got this tip from a friend and chuck roast is what you make beef stew out of. Yep. Why? Because it's tough yeah. and it's flavorful and it needs to be cooked low and slow in order to break down the connective tissue. But talk about flavor. It's very flavorful. Sure. It's also about three ninety nine a pound. Yeah, cheap. Yeah. So you take a three or four pound chuck roast, you rub it all over with olive oil and salt and pepper and rosemary and thyme and Geez, whatever else you want, but that that'll that'll do it right there. Garlic, I can't forget garlic. Vacuum seal it in a bag, dump it in a uh, in you know not non metric. It's one thirty five Fahrenheit bath for forty eight hours. <laughs> forty eight hours so it needs a little planning. Little planning needs a little planning. Uh, let me tell you what I I did one with the Anova and it just came out. It's medium rare, edge to edge. Yeah. Edge to edge, all the way through. And you mentioned the Ziploc bag, right? I mean, you do want to put it in a plastic bag with all the air burped out of it. I mean, if you want to get fancy, you can use a vacuum sealer, but it's not required. That's true. A Ziploc will work just fine. Sure. Actually, they have those Ziplocs that have uh, a manual pump and a little flap on them that you can just... You know, pump up and down and get the uh, and get the air out, and it doesn't yeah. require electricity or anything. So that's kind of cool. But yeah. you do also want to use a heavy grade uh, plastic, not something that's going to break down at a lower temperature. Yeah, food grade is good. And just remember, you're never boiling the water, right? Like that's that's right. the whole thing. Anyway, I'm glad yeah. you like it, dude. It I find them incredibly useful. Just you know, defrosting things, cooking stuff exactly, magical with eggs. Like there's this is really a oh. really a lot of fun. 
So there you go. That's the uh, kitchen tip of the day. All right. Who's talking <laughs> to us, Richard? Ah, uh, grab your comment off of show 1364. That was the uh, SpaceX Interplanetary Transport System geek out we did back in October, which had yeah. tons of good comments on it. It was also the show that Signal FM did up in the geekouts.xyz. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And our, this comment comes from Eric Knutson who said, uh, clearly Elon is talking about terraforming Mars. Of course, this whole show is about the space system to populate Mars, right? Right. And I didn't see any mention of how to deal with the problem that Mars has no magnetosphere. The current theory is the reason Mars lost its atmosphere and surface water is because of a lack of magnetosphere. How can we terraform a planet if it can't protect itself from solar wind? Now, I mean, A, <laughs> Eric, I'm going to disagree with you. Elon has talked about terraforming Mars, but he wasn't talking about that at the time. And let's face it, if you're going to do some terraforming, and there's a terraforming geek out show sometime in our future, I guarantee it. You don't do mm -hmm. it with people on the planet because that would be bad. All right? right. If you're going to let off nuclear weapons over ice, uh, over ice caps or crash uh, comets into a planet, you really don't want anybody there when you do that. So, uh, right. you know, there have been books like uh, Kim, Kim Stanley's books around uh, uh, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, where they did it a lot more gently. But, you know, we don't actually know how to terraform anything. Uh, we can't even terraform Earth, let alone Mars. Oh, no, we're terraforming Earth just fine, just not to well, our benefit. Not yeah, not to our benefit. Yeah. Right. But we're definitely terraforming Earth. We're doing a great yeah, job of true. that. You're, you're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> What's fun is Eric, uh, you know, a month after he wrote that original question, replied to himself. And he said, after I did a bit of a re research... I, I was trying to find a magnetosphere-atmosphere relationship, but I couldn't find one because Mercury has a magnetic field, but no atmosphere. Venus has a thick uh. atmosphere, but no magnetic field. Earth has both, and Mars has neither. Well, it has a very thin atmosphere, but no magnetic field. And okay. mass doesn't have much to do with it either. Titan has more pressure on the surface than Earth, but is half the mass of Mercury. Venus is 80% the mass of Earth, but 90 times the atmospheric pressure. Uh, of course, a magnetosphere does protect against charged particles, but maybe that's not that big of a deal, at least compared to having an atmosphere. And again, this, is, this could be a fun couple of shows all by itself. Near as we can tell in modern science, what actually determines the magnetosphere of a planet is whether or not it still has a spinning molten core. Right. So, Mercury, which is a very small planet uh, and completely rocky, still appears to have this spinning molten uh, nickel-iron core, and that's maintaining its magnetic field. Venus, who which ha probably has the core, but is actually turning in retrograde, odds are whatever caused that planet to now be turning backwards disrupted that core. So mm. that's why the magnetic field is largely gone. However, while it has a thick atmosphere, it has relatively little hydrogen because solar wind doesn't strip off all atmosphere. It just seems to strip off the light elements. And so huh. it's one of the reasons that it has so much carbon dioxide in its atmosphere is there's not enough hydrogen in Venus's atmosphere left to bind to the oxygen to collapse it as water. So Venus has serious problems. All of a sudden, the Earth feels like paradise, doesn't it? Well, because Earth has this great conversation of being in the right part of the orbit space and having this molten yep. core that's still working extremely well. And there's an argument and, and some good evidence to show that the moon was actually formed from parts of the Earth's crust in a collision, right. which in means collision, that the Earth yeah. is actually denser 
and has heavier elements than a planet typically would, which means its field is actually stronger. And that, yeah, yeah. Then that field gives us a lot of benefit. Now, Mars probably did have a molten core at one point, but Mars took a tremendous impact. They, 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 nick, they named the asteroid Hellas. And so there mm-hmm. are two features on Mars that you take a good look at, and it's the Hellas Basin, which looks like the impact site, and the Hellas Upthrust, which is where Olympic Mons are. And it's on the opposite side of the planet. So this impact is so big, huh. it looks like it broke the core, that it damaged wow. the core sufficiently to stop it from spinning, collapsing the magnetic field, and ultimately being part of stripping the light elements out of the atmosphere. If there was life, there weren't no more. Well, there may still be life. It turns out life is more creative than we realize. It's just going to be tricky yeah, yeah. to find. It's not going to look like anything we might recognize. But you consider the critters living around like the black smokers three miles underwater oh, in complete yeah. darkness. And they live off and of acid. Yeah. And they live off of sulfur. Yeah. Life finds a way. So I'm yeah. fairly optimistic. So... I mean, I don't know that Elon's ever really been serious about terraforming Mars. He's clearly interested in moving humans there. There are solutions to the problems to allow humans to live there. It's not going to be easy. Uh, mm. The simplest way to protect people from ra- the radiation that is striking the surface of Mars is to put them underneath some shielding. And that shielding would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of half a meter of dirt. Huh. It's not pretty, but it will work. And so mm. we may end up making underground cities until we can find more interesting radiation shielding. And I have been doing some reading around some boron nitrate impregnated cloths they're experimenting with that are remarkably effective at blocking radiation. But uh, mm. for the moment, it would be underground uh, living to, key, to minimize our radiation at least part of the time. And uh, we can mm. deal with the rest. And there's enough atmosphere. The funny part about Mars' atmosphere is there's enough atmosphere there to mess up a good reentry. Is not enough yeah. to really stop you, but n- too much for you to ignore it, and uh, and it does provide enough CO two for us to be able to make uh, methane for our engines. So that's a feature. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Either way, Eric, thank you so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google Plus, and if we comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We make methane from them. Nice. (laughs) Or something. Well, uh, this is supposed to be a Space in 2017 geek out. And you had planned this before the uh, president-elect came to power. Yep. And I just wonder, before we get started and what your thoughts are about all this... I'm I'm curious what you think about the future of science in general, in the United States anyway. There's certainly been some concerns around certain classes of science. You hear these stories of the environmental scientists making sure there are copies of data outside of the United States and things like that. Mm. Um, and I think most people are still uh, unsure as to what's going to happen. Yeah. But uh, I've never had a sense that Trump was particularly anti-space. Um, he just doesn't seem to be concerned like at all that. with it, really. I mean, I've never heard the word space come out of his mouth. There, there's been a couple of things. Uh, you know, I, I always pay close attention to this, and, and I think he's interested in 
uh, big dramatic missions. Yeah, sure. So I think he might be supportive of something to Mars or to the moon, hmm. but uh, you know, the less, the the more technical, complicated missions, I don't know, would be particularly interesting to him. So I, yeah, it's hard to know what's going to happen there, but uh, you know, I, I don't think the science aspect of space is going to be a driver. Probably not. Uh, and and one of the reasons to do this show was just that. They, you know, I field a lot of questions about what about this and what about that. There's all these bits and pieces uh, around the state of space. And there's some talking points we've never really addressed to talk about the state of space flight as a whole and how it's continuing to evolve. Okay. Um, and the big one, you know, we talk about an organization we've not really talked about. The one you'd need to talk about would be the United Launch Alliance. Because these the are the United Launch are, Alliance. Yes, United Launch Alliance, the premier spaceflight organization for the United States. Okay. Uh, ULA for short. Now, this organization was formed out of the end of the Cold War. So you got to go your way back machine to like 1991, 92, as the Cold War is ending. And one would argue there's a new Cold War starting now, but that's a separate yeah. conversation. Yeah. As the Cold War is ending, and the Clinton administration says it's you know time to start hammering some of those swords into plowshares, and the the military industrial complex starts to consolidate, and one of those consolidations was around uh, spaceflight. So where McDonnell Douglas had their set of rockets, and Boeing had their set of rockets, and Lockheed Martin had other ones, you know those companies were starting to merge, and they were fighting with each other. There were patent conflicts and so forth, and so. Uh, they came to the conclusion, why don't we all merge together? Well, Lockheed Martin and, and Boeing slash McDonnell Douglas were still competitors in the military space. Let's merge together to create a single entity to handle the space shuttle and uh, ultimately what became the uh, EELV or the Evolve Launch Vehicles. Hmm. Uh, there were concerns that this would not be the most efficient way and, and one would argue largely ULA... It's frozen in time. They've been flying more or less the same rocket since the late 90s. Uh, the General Accounting Office says that the average cost of a flight from ULA for not the space shuttles, but rather the Atlas V and the, and the Delta IVs are about $350 million a launch. Uh, ULA says $225 million a launch, but, you know, there's going to be those arguments. Uh, okay. Their mantra is assured access to space. That's why they have two different rocket systems, and they have had... As they say, a hundred percent success rate over the hundred and something launches that they've put up. Wow! Um, which, when in the context of what happened last year with SpaceX, is a fairly important thing to consider. But because they had right. no competition, you know, they really weren't incented to innovate in any way. Uh, ULA also had a little contract that was revealed sometime later, uh, called the Capabilities Contract. Okay. Which basically said whether they fly any missions or not in a given year, they're paid eight hundred million dollars. Really? Yeah. So it's job security for them. But in that sense, well, it's called the capabilities contract. It's like this is how much money we need to make sure we're maintaining the people and the equipment to be able to fly missions when you want to fly them. I guess you're right because unlike you know traditional companies where people come and go and they take the training and they learn, I mean a lot goes out the door when somebody leaves. A th an organization like that, huh? And especially when rockets just haven't been all that sexy the past few years. And so they yeah. sort of lost talent. And when along came SpaceX, 
to actually flying rockets into orbit and sort of a threat to all this, uh, it was a big deal for ULA. They were not particularly well equipped to deal with it. Uh, and they did a dirty back in 2013. I don't know if you remember where they basically, you know, up until then they had been negotiating with the Air Force because they supply the National Reconnaissance Office and all military flights, uh, Delta IV and Atlas V. Mm-hmm. In 2013, they made a deal and pre-sold 36 rockets to the Air Force at a discount for flights through to 2021 because they saw the writing on the wall that SpaceX were going to start competing in that space. And so they tried to lock up the market. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's when Elon blew a gasket and there was this whole row around the fact that the Atlas V, which was the primary lift vehicle, was flying on Russian engines, the RD-180. And uh, mm-hmm. what are you doing flying sensitive military uh, satellites on Russian hardware? Right. And this really hit hard when the next block of GPS satellites came along. So, you know, they're replacing new, uh, the old GPS satellites with new ones on a regular basis. And the Air Force put it out to bid because they're kind of required to do that. And up until now, yeah. I mean, every single GPS satellite has been flown on a ULA rocket. Hmm. And so now SpaceX could bid. And SpaceX bid on the on the project at about eighty three million dollars. Wow, uh, which was a hundred and forty two million less than the average cost. Right, so yeah. I mean, it was a third the price, and ULA didn't even bid. And it huh. came out that the Air Force really did everything they could to try and get ULA involved to make the deal as feasible for 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 ULA. But they ended up not bidding at all. And that caused a whole other set of rows. This sounds like a Tom Clancy novel or something. Well, and it's, you know, what it's it is. It's a bit of drama. It is a bit of drama. But you, you've got an organization that has had 20 years as a sole supplier for a set of products. And yeah. suddenly they had a competitor and they didn't know what to do. Now, one thing they did right. do when, they, when this GPS thing blew over, in April 2016, they had a massive layoff. They laid off 25% of their workforce. Wow. And they have gotten to work developing new rockets. So, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the advantage of competition. One of it is they, they actually need to get better. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the ELV project represented two basic classes of rockets, the Delta and the Atlas. The Delta rockets as a whole, uh, you know, both these rockets go all the way back to the Cold War. Right? I mean, they, they are the original rockets John Glenn, who we lost in 2016, flew right. on, on an Atlas rocket, you know, and so forth. These were the very first rockets. Many of them were initially ICBMs. Then they were converted yeah. and upgraded and so forth. The, the Delta IV and the Atlas V represent advanced versions of those original, original rockets. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got a soft spot for the Delta II. A lot of great satellites have flown off the Delta II that have gone on the Mars and so forth. The, the, all of the Delta rockets are being retired. The Delta II, there are only three left. They closed the line a long, long time ago, but they have these three rockets. Two of them have missions. There's a, a civil uh, satellite for the U.S. Uh, NOAA, and there's a NASA ice monitoring uh, satellite. There's no mission for the third one. They think they're just going to put it in a museum. Hmm. Um, old, it's an old rocket. And again, it's you know an expensive yeah. rocket. The Delta IV, which is by far the most powerful rocket, the Delta IV Heavy on its full-up configuration is the most powerful rocket the Americans can currently field. Um, they, ha- they are committed to some national reconnaissance satellites because these are very heavy uh, you know, military satellites flying right up through to 2022. But they are shutting down the line. Um, 
Atlas V is going to fly for a little bit longer. They still have a few RD-180s left, but they're not going to get any more with the conflict around the Russians. But ULA is working on a new rocket they named Vulcan. Huh, and that's funny. Of course, the big thing is they got to get rid of that big engine, the RD-180, and there's no equivalent engine. They, they were some, you know, the back in the late in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Americans came, we got to buy some stuff for you. We got to prop your economy up. They were trying to help out their former enemy, really. Right. It was a big part of our budget of uh, the United States budget was aid to Russia. Just to support Russia. And so, and let's face it, the RD-180 engine is a phenomenally good rocket engine. And, uh, and they needed to, to continue to use it. Yeah. They were supposed to develop a replacement, but they never did. And now that it had become a problem, they need it. They now need a replacement. So the Vulcan, actually, there are two possible engines. The old school rocket company in the United States is a company called Aerojet Rocketdyne, right? Which is actually several companies merged together. Thiokol's in there. Like these are the guys. You know, the origins of that company go all the way back to the F one engine for the Saturn V. They've made a lot okay. of rocket engines over the years, and they are willing to make a new engine comparable to the RD-180 called the AR-1. But the upstart is Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company. Hmm. So Jeff Bezos is building a new engine, a methane engine, called the BE-4. Okay. Uh, 550,000 pounds of thrust. Should be very reusable. They're expecting to fire the uh, full the assembled engine in 2017. So this is news for 2017. We should see our first BE4 this year. And wow. uh, just recently, a ULA selected the BE4 as their primary engine for the Vulcan. They will use the AR1 wow. as a backup. The challenge here is that the BE4 being a methane engine. And the AR-1 being an RP-1 engine or a kerosene engine, the tanking is different. So it's not easy to switch between them. The engines aren't interchangeable in any way. But they do want to make uh, essentially natural gas-powered engines work. And we talked about this on earlier shows. The reason we haven't seen large-scale methane engines before is because they run so hot that you have to build the engine heavier, which makes it more expensive. Methane engines make a lot of sense if you're going to reuse the engine. Yeah. And believe it or not, ULA has proposed a recovery system for the first stage. Well, not the whole first stage, just the first stage engines. They call it the Sensible Autonomous Return Technology, or SMART, which seems <laughs> to be an implication that what SpaceX is doing is not smart, but I don't not see smart. that straight. Yeah. And so get this. This is an interesting idea. Okay. Rather than, and their argument is, don't, you have to keep fuel back to fly your first stage back, right? Which costs a lot of performance. And in the end, the tanks aren't that expensive. You just want the engines back, right? So. Yeah, right. After the first stage burns out, rather than flying the whole thing back on fuel, what you actually do is you have a cutaway system that cuts the engine assembly away from the rest of the tank. And there's going to be some complexity here, but they have to figure out how to cut those all the fuel pipes safely, and you separate the engines from the rest of the tank. Okay. It, now it has to re-enter, because it's not going fast enough to actually go into space, right? It's, it's, it's probably above the Kármán line, but it's going to fall back down. It's not, in, it's not in orbit. So you have to protect it somehow, and the protection will come in the form of a thing called uh, a hypersonic inflatable atmospheric decelerator, or HIAD. 
Okay. Now, this is a technology that's in testing. The first version of it flew in 2013, uh, and it was five meters or roughly 15 feet wide. Yeah. And designed to be able to protect something re-entering the atmosphere at velocity. This one would need to be 12 meters or 36 feet in diameter. So huge, much, much bigger. But that would protect the engines on their re-entry as they're coming down. However, it won't land them. At some point in that descent, they would deploy a parafoil, essentially a big parachute, but one that they could actually fly. Now, you don't want to land those engines in the water, and you've got no thrust, so you can't maneuver them, right? They're just basically now floating down on a parachute. And their proposal is they would do a mid-air recovery, which is something that was done back in the 1960s for spy satellite uh, payloads, and they're recovering film from spy satellites. Mid-air. So I've heard of mid-air refueling. Right. This is a mid-air recovery. So what happens in a mid-air recovery? You have a a flying vehicle, either a helicopter or an aircraft, that flies a catching system into the parafoil to grab it. Wow. Yeah. That's dramatic. So the estimate is, this is dramatic. This is what I'm saying. There's some drama here. Now, the guess is that this engine cluster, a pair of BE-4s, going to weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of 21,000 pounds or about 10,000 kilograms or 10 metric tons, which makes yeah. it the largest payload to ever be grabbed in midair. It's pretty big. So <laughs> problem number one, what vehicle can handle this? And uh, you're probably looking at a helicopter. So the largest helicopter the Americans currently have available to them is a helicopter called the King Stallion, the CH-53K, <laughs> and it can handle about 33,000 pounds. So it's in the ballpark. Should I tell everybody the story of you uh, identifying helicopters at an outdoor lunch just by the sound of their rotors? As I recall, it was, uh, it was a stallion that I identified, too. But... <laughs> yeah, okay. Hey, look, seven-bladed, seven-bladed rotors have a very distinctive sound. <laughs> just say it. <laughs> Once you've heard them, you'll know. That was, that was impressive, Mr. Campbell. Okay. The challenge is, of course, you have to estimate fairly accurately where this thing's going to land because helicopters don't have a lot of range. And yeah. so you're, you are talking about computing where the thing's going to come in, sending a fairly good-sized ship out there with a big helicopter or two, and then being able to snag it on the way down, pick up, carry that load, fly it back to the ship and put it down, which is far from free, but then none of this stuff is free. Well, and it's a difficult engineering problem, too. It is. And it's a question of value. How much are those engines actually worth? What is it going to cost to refit them back onto a tank? And what does it cost to have all that recovery system? Are you actually saving any money? Yeah. You know, that's going to, you're going to hear this debate over and over again. As I've dug into answering people's questions around this sort of stuff, we constantly run into the issue of, is this economically viable? Yeah, that idea struck me when we were Scotland, I think we were last year about this time, watching the uh, SpaceX rockets uh, attempt to land um, on a platform. And failing. I I guess, you know, it is a big deal, right? Because if you can reuse these things and really reuse them, you know, you can save millions and millions of dollars. And that was always Elon's argument, right? The fuel's only a few hundred thousand dollars. Why are these things costing millions and millions of dollars? 
Uh, the challenge, right. of course, is he, you know he intended to reuse the whole rocket, and he's pretty much only figured out how to reuse the first stage, although he's yet to actually reuse one. Right. Uh, so you know it's very interesting to see how much damage has actually occurred to those engines. I guess the other idea is that well, if you just dump it into the water, the salt is going to corrode things so bad that it can't be reused. Is that the idea? That's right. Well, and it's also an, an issue with RP-1. I've read a couple of papers on how kerosene, when not fully burned, uh, is quite corrosive in a vacuum, which is one of the reasons they want to switch to methane engines, is that they won't, they don't feel like it's not going to have those same issues. So, yeah. you know, the... the Yes, we've repeatedly fired the same engines over and over and over again, but we have not flown engines into space and back again over and over again and reused them, with the exception of the RS-25A, the space shuttle engine, which was a hydrogen engine. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're still learning things here. Well, Richard, you know what time it is now? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to science the sous vide out of space. <laughs> That's an edge-to-edge medium rare for you, sir. <laughs> uh, you know, it'd be nice if we could just use terms like sous vide in, as, as expletives. Nice. Sous vide! You know? <laughs> I like guacamole for that. It sounds like you burnt your finger, right? Guacamole! Uh, guacamole! <laughs> yeah. It's actually time to give away a DevExpress de-experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Hey, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Carl Barnes. Congratulations, Carl. Golf clap for you, sir. I don't have the clappers. I'm in my home studio, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't have the clappers with me. But uh, Carl gets a, an actual golf clap from me and, <laughs> and you, of course. Feel special. <laughs> yeah. And Carl just won DevExpress's D-Experience subscription. That is a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win, so go do it now. So what about SpaceX? What are they going to do this year? Now, we're in an interesting situation right now. We're recording this show on January 7th. It's going to be published on January 19th. Right. And SpaceX has not flown a vehicle since the accident on September 1st, 2016. Huh, what have they been doing? They've been trying to figure out what the heck happened. (laughs) And they figured it out. I've read the report and the FAA has signed off on it. Now, if you remember, they were doing a fueling test. They were going to fuel up the vehicle and fire the engines to make sure everything worked just before the few days before they were actually going to fly the payload. And in the middle of fueling, abruptly, the second stage exploded in flames and destroyed the everything. Uh, it was quite spectacular. Uh, there's been lots of conspiracy theories around because it looks so strange the way it blew up. 
that it was yeah you know, talk about drama yeah hit by uh by you know sabotage or ufos like what was it uh and the interesting thing is what failed was one of the helium pressurization tanks in the inside the locks tank uh does that sound familiar yes it does it's also what destroyed crs6 the remember the 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 other falcon 9 failure uh okay on its ascent the second stage abruptly burst, and it was one of these helium tanks inside the LOX tank. In that case, in CRS-6, it broke free, ruptured, and then blew the tank apart. In this case, it was even stranger. And this is what made it so difficult to diagnose. So these helium tanks, which they store helium that they use to keep the liquid oxygen tank pressurized as it's consumed. Because mm-hmm. if you lose pressure... The tank will collapse and that the rocket will break apart and that's bad. Right. To make those tanks as light as possible, the inner part of the tank is made of aluminum, which is impervious to helium. So the helium won't leak out. But if you make sure. the tank thick enough to actually hold that much pressurized helium, the tank's too heavy. So to make the tank lighter, mm. they make it out of a thin layer of aluminum and then they wrap that aluminum in carbon fiber. So the aluminum... Carbon fiber. Yes. The lightest, strongest material we currently can manufacture. And if you remember from the ITS show that I read the comment from, they're talking about making yep. their tanks out of carbon fiber. And there's a problem between carbon fiber and liquid oxygen. Okay. And that is that carbon fiber is really burnt string. It's, it's carbon. And if you put carbon with a lot of oxidizer, bad things can happen. Now, they're very careful about what they do with this. But they dealt with an interesting situation. In these Falcon 9 1.2s, or what they call the full thrust version, they're using ultra-cold liquid oxygen because it's denser. Mm. Yeah. They get about a 10% performance boost by using this extremely cold liquid oxygen. Now, normally in rockets, liquid oxygen is just barely a liquid. It's at near the boiling point of liquid oxygen. Yeah. I know it's cold, yeah, yeah. but it's the warmest cold that it can be. <laughs> which is why it's always burping off gas. And they continuously yeah. just refill the tank all the time, right up until it launches. That's mm. why they pull those umbilicals away at the last second. They're literally filling the tank the whole time until the rocket leaves because it boils off. Because they want it as full as possible. Exactly, to get as much fuel in there as possible. But using ultra-cold liquid oxygen, they're actually using liquid oxygen that's close to its freezing point to solid oxygen. Huh. That because they get additional density from that. All right. Now, when they fill that second stage tank with liquid oxygen, it penetrates the carbon fibers that are in those helium tanks because those carbon fibers are not sealed in any way. They don't need to be sealed. And it'll actually buckle the aluminum layer a little bit, the pressure from that, which is okay. It can handle the buckling in. You just don't allow mm-hmm. it to buckle out. But okay. here's the problem. The helium that they pumped into those tanks was even colder than the liquid oxygen. Helium is capable of being colder, Ah. and it froze the liquid oxygen into solid oxygen. So you have this combination buckling. So the buckling creates gaps between the aluminum and the carbon fiber. Then you have ultra-cold helium freezing that liquid oxygen into a solid. But then as the helium tank fully pressurized, that solid oxygen was pressed against the carbon fiber until it shattered. And if you create any friction between carbon fiber and liquid oxygen, it bursts into flames, even inside of a tank. And that's what happened. 
Now, the question is, wow. why has this never happened before? And the right, reason have we is... we just gotten lucky? This particular fueling, this time, was a new procedure. They had never done it before. And the very first time they fueled this particular way, and it was all about trying to do fast loading... Because you can't keep the fuel in the tanks for very long. It'll warm up. And if it warms up, it expands, and then you'll lose that additional thrust. So they were trying a fast-loading procedure, and it created this problem. Wow. So the solution to the problem was actually use warmer helium. Okay. They use warmer helium so that liquid oxygen doesn't freeze solid. They won't have this particular problem. That's the quick way to get it fixed in time for what they're trying to do, which is literally between when we're recording this show and when this show's publishing, they're going to fly their oh. first mission. They've gotten permission. So it, We're recording on a Saturday. This thing flies on a Monday. Show plays on a Thursday. So so where can the listeners go to find out what happened? Well, it'll be in the news. I guarantee you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Everybody's paying attention. Because if this mission goes wrong, SpaceX is in big trouble. This upcoming mission is the first of the new Iridium satellites. So... Iridium was one of the, back in the, in the dot-com boom, they flew the first constellation of like worldwide cellular telephones, the satellite telephones. They didn't work all yeah. that well, but you know, it was kind of a big deal. This SpaceX right. flight is supposed to fly 10 new satellites for Iridium at once. Wow. When they lost, when that mission failed on September 1st, not only did it destroy that Israeli satellite, which is bad, Amos 6 was lost. They also lost a couple of the payloads because the, the pushback in the deadline was not, it didn't work for, for certain people's schedules. Like Inmarsat's uh, Helisat got moved over to Ariane 5. But right now, SpaceX still has all of the Iridium contracts. Uh, they still have Inmar's, uh, Inmar 5's satellite. Like they, they have more flights booked for 2016 than they've ever flown before. And so they're under a lot of pressure to fly a ton of missions in 2017. Like, they've got seven wow. flights for Iridium alone in 2017. So, they've really got to get this thing up and flying reliably. And, of course, the ULA guys are all over this. Is You know, this is what happens when you innovate too quickly. Um, and I started digging. They were talking about our, our vehicles never fail. Turns out that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> they, when you uh, say never. Yeah. When you <laughs> say never. Like, the second Delta IV flight that ever flew, the heavy demo, that was a full loss. But they always could say the Atlas never lost anything. And it's like, well, I guess that's technically true. Because I went all the way. I'm not going to count the very early, like the 1950s, 1960s rockets. That's not fair. But, like, Atlas II had 63 successful launches between 91 and 2004. They never lost a single one of those Atlas IIs. Atlas III, which was the first of the RD-180 rockets, they only flew six missions between 2000 and 2005, but they all worked as well. But Atlas V, they've had two extreme near misses or near failures. They didn't lose oh. the satellites, but stuff went wrong. One of their very first... Military flights, the first NRO flight called NRO L30, and back in 2007, the Centaur stage had leaks, and so the they managed to get the NRO payload into orbit, but it was the wrong orbit. So the, and they were able to save the spacecraft because the spacecraft had its own booster, so it was able to burn a bunch of its fuel to get to the orbit it needed to be. That shortened the lifespan of the spacecraft. Is that actually a failure? Yeah, mm. and. Mm. 
Uh, interesting one, it sort of ties into our other uh, other conversation here, continuing conversation here is, remember when uh, uh, Orbital ATK, who flies the Cygnus resupply missions to the space station, had their yeah, big explosion? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, ULA provided two Atlas uh, rockets, actually three total, to Cygnus. The second Atlas flight, Cygnus OA-6, which was in March of 2016, had a malfunction. The first stage hmm. shut down six seconds early. Oh, man. Doesn't sound like a lot, does it? No, and it, it was a, It was a fuel mixture problem that caused the first stage to shut down early. And the Centaur stage, the upper stage, burned... Because of that six-second delay, the Centaur stage had to burn an extra minute to compensate. OA-6 did get to the space station successfully. But for the Centaur stage to burn that entire extra minute meant that it didn't deorbit properly. It did actually deorbit, because they're required to have the second stages actually deorbit. You can't leave any space junk anymore. You actually have to right. save enough fuel, turn around, and re-enter deliberately. So the Centaur stage... Re did deorbit, but in the wrong location. And when they did all the math, because it was a computer that basically solved this problem, they didn't do anything, right? Literally, they didn't realize yeah. the engine had shut down early. Their animation showed it's still running when it wasn't running. They didn't tell the Centaur to burn longer. The computer solved that problem. If right. the stage one had burnt one second shorter, they would have lost the payload. It was that close. Wow. So... You know, the math on these things are super tight. There's only so much room for any of these things. There's another thing that SpaceX is going to do in 2017 that I want to get to because I think everybody's really interested in. That is the Falcon Heavy. Yeah, the Falcon. So Falcon Heavy, which is, that's the three core model, is supposed to have its, was supposed to have its first test flight, well, first in 2015 and then in 2016. And that was going to definitely be 2017. And we're still hopeful they're actually going to do a demo flight in 2017 for the Falcon Heavy. Although, do you remember the sort of claim to fame of the of the Falcon Heavy, the whole cross-feed fuel system? No, remind us. So this is an interesting idea, right? So the Delta IV Heavy has the same configuration, three identical boosters side by side. The center booster has the payload on top of it, but you have the two sides. The, the, but in the Delta IV, there's no cross-feeding of fuel. And so since they're all identical, if you just ran all three of them at full power the whole time, they'd all burn out at the same time. Ah. And so in order to have... Oh, uh, yeah. That's so, right. So in, in order to boost the payload more effectively, in the Delta IV, what they do is they throttle back the center engine. So the center core runs at 60%, which is not as efficient, but it means that it has fuel left over when the outside engines are burned out, and then it can continue to fire and, and, and boost up before. And so Elon's big idea was the two outside boosters not only power their own nine engines, but they also fuel the center nine engines. So they all run at full power the whole time, but it just drains the outside tanks. And once the outside tanks are empty, then you switch over to the center tanks to run those center engines and the outsides drop away. Okay. Now, what's the problem with that idea? Because it sounds super cool. And by the way, in Kerbal Space Program, we do this all the time. It's just that in Kerbal, it's magic that just works. What, what's <laughs> hard know. in real life? This is all hard to me. I don't, I don't even know how to play Kerbal. Right. It's the fuel flow. Look, the fuel flow has to be absolutely perfect. Each engine has its own pumps. If the fuel is not perfect into those, into those pumps, you'll blow those pumps apart. They're under so much strain. There can't be any bubbles. There can't be any gaps. Yeah. So how do right. you switch fuel from one 
source to another without a gap. And that's essentially the problem. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you uh, have to empty one tank into the current tank. That's one of the current and, tank. And that's, know, that's, that's certainly one approach is to try and dump the fuel into the tanks themselves. But that means right. they're longer lines and they're bigger lines. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not specific to the engines. And you, you need to keep the, all those pressures even. Ah, uh, that's true. So one of the things that is, so they've gradually altered this plan. So one of the things that they've done is they said, what's going to happen is that one side's going to power the, its nine engines and then three of the center engines and the other side will do the same. So three center engines uh, uh, will be powered by the main, its center tanks and it'll just be effectively 12 engines on each side. So the cross feed is not quite as complex. Uh, you still have the switching okay. challenge, Right. And they're starting to, starting to figure the math of what's the cost of the additional plumbing? What's the cost of the transfer system? Uh, in, you know, what is the actual performance benefit? Because one of the things that happens if you have too much thrust is you just overheat the, the spacecraft. And we have had separate fuel tanks from engine systems before. I mean, that's how the space shuttle worked, right? Those main engines ran on a fuel tank that was completely external. But you never had to switch from one fuel source to another. Once that external tank was gone, there was no more fuel for the main engines. Right. And so at this particular point with the Falcon Heavy, for the two flights that they have planned, which is a demo flight and an Air Force flight, they're not going to do cross-feeding at all. Okay. So they're all the way back to, I mean, this isn't a thing. So I've talked about ULA and SpaceX, basically. We should probably hit a few of the others before we run out of time here. That's right. We When we started geeking out in space, there was a whole bunch of players like Virgin Galactic mm-hmm. and all of these tourism companies. They wanted to do, you know, space tours and everything. And Virgin Galactic is still out there. You know, they had their big accident back in 2015 as well uh, that, was, that, that was actually fatal. They are expecting in 2017 to have Spaceship Two up and flying again. So we, we should see them again. But the other two companies that are that are, are the obvious ones in this space, Orbital ATK, I mentioned them a little bit with the Cygnus. Uh, right. So they had their accident in 2014. They, they lost that payload. They've moved three payloads over to Atlas, two of which have flown. One will fly in March this year. Uh, but they've also, as of October last year, 2016, they flew their first Antares 200. So the replacement rocket successfully delivered a payload uh, to the space station. So they're going to, they're back up and running again. The funny part is they're back up and running on a different Russian motor. Oh, wow. So the original Antares 100 that had the accident in October, 2014 was because of these old NK 33 engines from the 1970s that they had bought for a song. So to fix that, they switched to modern Russian engines, which I, you know, I'm always curious, you know, why is that? Okay. <laughs> But I guess the, the point being that yeah, the right. orbital ATK isn't flying classified payloads. They're flying space station payloads. The Russians are there. So those are RDA-181 engines, which are different from the 180 engines. Um, and they're going to make a new version of that called the Antares 300. But more interesting still, they, did, they have said they want to compete against the Vulcan and the Falcon Heavy with a new rocket they haven't got a name for yet. Um, that is going to run solid rocket motors as their as their initial launch. Remember, these Orbital ATK owns Thiokol, the guys who built the space shuttle boosters, right? And so they have they're going to use smaller versions of the space shuttle boosters, the Castor six hundred and three hundred, as their first two stages, and then they want their upper stage to be the Blue Origin BE three engine. 
So they want to compete uh, in uh, the heavy lift category as well. And that leads us to Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company. Blue so, Origin. Yes. In 20, 2016 was a good year for Blue Origin. They finally sort of came out of the dark. They had four flights of their new Shepard. They not only landed successfully, but they reflew the same rocket multiple times. Admittedly, not into orbit. These were all just low, you know, low-velocity stuff on that BE-3 engine. But they say they should be ready to fly passengers, the first test passengers in 2017, and then tickets will go on sale for 2018 suborbital flights. Wow. Their product is pretty much ready. And they, uh, tickets as in the public, the public can get a flight on a new shepherd suborbital flight, just like what Virgin Galactic is trying to offer. Okay. So first, first test flights, man test flights should be this year, 2017 for first commercial flights in 2018. The other thing they announced in 20, it's, it's happening, dude. And you know, they've been very quiet and conservative, but, uh, you know, the interesting thing about that BE three engine that they're using on new Shepard is it's a hydrogen engine and that, you know, takes Mm. straight from the space shuttle engine. They know how to reuse those. And so the fact that they actually flew in one and a couple of those new Shepard flights, they not only flew the same engine, they flew it without taking it apart. Like they literally Mm. just flew it again. And their commercial capsule is supposed to be three to four minutes of free fall time on the normal flight profile, six passengers per flight, the largest windows ever in a space vehicle. And those, wow. and they're currently being constructed right now. But also in 2016, they announced their next rocket called New Glenn. So New Shepard after Alan Shepard, the first American to get into space, right. to cross the Kármán line. Yep. Uh, you know, New Glenn being after John Glenn, the first American to orbit. Yep. Uh, and so it's an orbitable spacecraft. It's massive. So uh, seven meter or 20 foot diameter rocket, two or three stages uh, using their BE-4 engine. This is the same engine that ULA wants to use for the Vulcan. Seven of those engines, methane powered. And then a second stage with a single BE-4 engine. And if they need a third stage, then there'd be a third stage with a BE-3 engine. So that is under construction now. In fact, they're also building and they they're building their plant for New Glenn in Florida. Although the engines themselves are being bent, built in Kent, Washington. So they have a, a factory currently up and running in Kent, Washington, uh, able to build 12 of those BE4s a year. Now, admittedly, none of those engines have run yet, but we should see it this year. Uh, and they know they're going to need a build, bigger facility for it. So out of all the things that are happening this year, what would surprise you? You know, if what milestone would surprise Richard Campbell if it happened? Uh, I think if the Falcon 9 actually flies and is able to return the, those outside boosters, so that much is demonstrated, that's a huge milestone. I'd be very excited to see that, uh, to, to actually see that actually happen. And it, I, I think it's probably going to get pushed. You know, they've got enough problems right now that, that it's not likely those things will fly this year. Um, wow. I'm really worried about the BE-4. I think, I know that, that the Blue Origin is very conservative. And so, but there's a lot of people betting on this engine in a big way. So, you know, I'll be very excited if they can actually make that engine run the way it's supposed to. And to have an over half a million pound thrust methane engine, a natural gas engine, 
that's reusable is kind of a big deal. Like that, that sort of takes steps mm. forward. And Blue Origin's making no bones about that. The new Glen Rocket, that first stage is a returnable stage. So they're yeah. gonna they're gonna take off with seven of those BE four engines. So you know, do the math. It's about four million pounds of thrust. They're gonna fly fly that first stage and then turn it around and fly it back. Although they are okay. talking about ship based landings as well. All right, good. Well, all right. Getting down to the last few minutes, I, I got I want to mention two other companies. One is a little okay. guy I've been watching for a while out of New Zealand because I'm biased. Uh, <laughs> yeah. call, called Rocket Lab. And they intend to okay. fly their electron rocket in 2017. Um, I've been watching them because they their entire rocket is carbon fiber, almost all carbon fiber. And uh, with all the problems that that lays in, these guys are really pushing it. But this is a very lightweight rocket. It's meant for CubeSats, so ultra small, you know, ten pound satellites. Most CubeSats are fly as secondary payloads on other missions because they're so small. And the problem, of course, then is you have to go in whatever orbit the big payload is going in, which may or may not be good for you. And so Rocket Lab thinks there's a business in low-cost, lightweight rockets flying CubeSats. And I hope they succeed. Love to see a new company, much less a Kiwi company, doing that. Now, you ready for the odd duck? I'm ready. All right. There is a company in the UK called Reaction Engines Limited. You've seen them on the news and things. They have been in my tinfoil hat category for a long time. This is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Their, their claim to fame was a single stage to orbit vehicle called Skylon. Dun, dun, dun. It's a great Sounds name. like sci-fi already. Yes, yeah, Skylon. And it used two engines called Synergistic Air Breathing Rocket Engines or Sabre Engines. So here's oh, the boy. idea. It's a liquid hydrogen engine. That uses air as the oxidizer rather than liquid oxygen. Huh? Now they've been around. Yeah, think about that for a minute. So rather well, than it's haul, abundant and you don't have to, you know, compress it and all of that. But does it work? That you kind of have to compress it. I mean, this is the problem. You have to get round up enough oxygen to be able to feed the hydrogen well, and you have to do it in real time while you're flying. Yeah, so how do you compress more air than you can possibly take in? The, somehow I, I get the feeling that energy in is more than energy out there. It might be a problem. So, and so I, like I said, they've been in the tinfoil hat category for a while. Their secret sauce is the thing they call the supercooler. And the supercooler is a tube you put on the inlet to your engine that chills Hot air, because when you're flying through high ap atmosphere at high velocity, it's quite hot. It'll take air from a thousand degrees centigrade to negative 153 degrees centigrade in 10 milliseconds. What? And it does it because the entire inlet is made up of these very fine tubes with high pressure liquid helium pumping through the tubing. It is literally 2,000 kilometers of one millimeter diameter cooling tubes with helium flowing through them to super chill the air as it comes into the engine so that they're able to grab it and combine it with hydrogen and burn the rocket out the back end without having to carry does the it, oxidizer. Does it take more energy to cool the air than you get from the compression of the air? Apparently not, but nobody's flown anything yet. But people are taking these guys seriously. So wow. the announcement that hit me came in the fall of 2016 
when the U.S. Air Force said they were willing to kick some money in. So that made me go back and look at Reaction Engines closer and found out they got private investment to the tune of $75 million a few years ago. $75 million is peanuts for rocket flight, yeah. but it's real money. Right. And then got an additional $90 million from the UK government some years later. And then wow. BAE, who's a, a military industrial complex company, bought 20% of the company for $30 million in 2015. So, you know, a couple of hundred million bucks. The pro- proposal is to build a 44,000-pound thrust Sabre engine. Now, the full-scale engine yeah. for their single-stage orbit would be three or four times the size of this, but this would be about the size of an engine for a fighter jet. Only this should be an engine that functions well up to Mach 5, huh? which is interesting. It is so, interesting. Uh, they are in the process of taking their supercooler and the core engine uh, starting last year, this year, and and this year, the next couple of years are going to build that initial engine uh, with core tests in 2019. And if those go well, then they'll go to the secondary phase, which is a fully integrated test to be able to to, uh, fly by 2021. So I had to take the tinfoil hat off this company. They've got real funding from real companies to build a reasonable size product. And if that works, then you just have to look at the larger scale version and say, does this make sense? Well, and the question is, if it works, you know, yeah. we'll have to wait and see. They, they could still be in the tinfoil hat category. But, and they just fooled a lot of big people. Well, look at the, the guy in Italy with the cat uh, device there. Yeah, you know, there's no governments have signed on with that guy. But this time, we, they actually have government signed on. So I'm real. You know what? I hope it works. Yeah, me too, of course. The world would be a better place if we can do an air-breathing rocket engine. That is a pretty cool idea. So, you know, more, I totally agree. more power to them. And it would just make, you know, something about UK science that's always a little weird. I, I'm excited <laughs> that, it'll, you know, something actually works there. So it's good news. Yeah. Well, there's a little Doctor Who influence there, no doubt. I think you're right. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, 2017 looks like a pretty good year, my friend. That is pretty cool. And uh, great summary. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that's the show, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a